0: Hello and welcome in to another edition of the QB11 show. QB, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Doug? I'm doing well. A lot of realignment stuff going on that's keeping us all at the edge of our seats, but there's also a lot of football to start talking about. We're, we're only weeks away from fall camp opening around the country, so the time clock is ticking and we are getting closer and closer to actual football on the field of play, and I, I cannot wait. Yeah, me
1: neither. I think the um, realignment stuff... Simultaneously happening and not happening all at the same time is only adding to the eagerness for actual football to be back on TV again here in the very near future. So uh, we just want to take a moment to thank everybody for all the support, uh, all of the five star reviews, just everyone who's reached out and is enjoying the content. As always, just please send any feedback our way. And um, if you have complaints, send them to Doug. If you have compliments, send them to me and we'll just kind of operate with that standard procedure going forward.
0: I love it. I love it. Um, Yeah, and on that note, we um, today on today's episode, we'll be doing finishing up our over unders for the Power Five. We'll do the ACC and SEC, which we started back with the the other conferences a few episodes back. And then also on the note you mentioned, we have a ton of listener mail questions to get to. So we'll we'll answer. We'll spend a lot of time answering all the questions that were asked to us by our listeners. And uh, I think that'll make for a good episode. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. All right, so let's jump in. Let's start with the ACC. Um, so I think we're going to review, what we got? Six schools we're going to look at in the ACC and their over-unders. And why don't we start right? All right, so why don't we start with Clemson? So the over-under for Clemson, 10.5. What do you like on this one? Yeah, this
1: one's tough. One, I actually think the ACC is a semi-difficult conference this year, especially when you consider the schedule that Clemson has. Um, I think really whether or not they go over-under on this comes down to how confident you are in their quarterback play. And so for me, whether it's uh, Yui um uh, or the true freshman that's incoming, the five-star, um, I, I think they'll have good enough quarterback play given how much of a roster advantage they have everywhere else over the entire league to get to the over on this game. Um, I also like the fact that they play NC State and Miami at home, two of the tougher games in conference. Um, I w- with a ten and a half over under the ability to to drop a game without being punished. There's a couple of away games that seem difficult to me. One at Notre Dame um, in in November, and then a, a late September game at Wake Forest. But I just think that that people are kind of sleeping on clumps. I think that this number is is kind of tamped down a little bit just because of the kind of weird season that that they had last year. Uh, I just have a lot of confidence. I think this is probably the best defensive front in college football, and in a league where there's really not a lot of strong offensive lines, I think that on its own is enough to create quite a margin for error. If they even get halfway decent quarterback play this year, I'm pretty confident that Clemson's going to win the league. So I'm going to take the over for Clemson. Um, I think that they're going to have a nice bounce back year. although I am eager to see what they look like with two new coordinators uh, after losing Tony Elliott to be the head coach of Virginia and obviously Brett Vendables to be the head coach at Oklahoma
0: and that is really the wild card in in evaluating Clemson right they have had that coaching continuity across the coordinators and most of their staff for for really this whole run with Dabo and this is really the first time they've had to replace coordinators and they're doing both of them so that's a wild card into this i think um i think some of their demise last year was a bit overblown they they won 9 games uh they did win their final six including their bowl game so they ended up uh you know 10 and 3 at the at the end of it all So I do think their 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 obituary is probably being being written a little bit too too quickly and too hastily by by many people. I do think uh, you know the at Notre Dame game sticks out as as probably the toughest one on their entire schedule. Um, And of course, that's not a game they play every year, so that certainly ratchets up the the difficulty mark as well. They do open the season with their rivalry game. They're out of conference rivalry game at Georgia Tech, but that's at home, and Georgia Tech's not a particularly powerful team, so. I, they have kind of a nice lead-in to kind of maybe get some of the stuff right, work out some of the kinks. they got Georgia Tech, Furman, and Louisiana Tech at home before going to Wake Forest in week four. So I think they could be set up nicely, work out some of the bugs, and then be ready to roll. Um, I, too, will take the over in here. I think they're going to go 11-1. and one.
1: Yeah, again, I think that the, some of the demise of Clemson is maybe more from the more casual viewer of Clemson because in, in a similar sense to the way Oregon performed last year, They had a ton of injuries, and they had a lot of injuries to frontline guys, and they were a really young team to begin with last year, and so they've they've got a lot of guys kind of coming into their junior year right now uh, from that really highly ranked, I think it was the number one overall class in 2020. So I I think that they're set up to really start to collect on the fruits of that 2020 class uh, in a league that, outside of a, a team, Miami, who has a good quarterback, and some talent but still has holes across the roster, a team like Wake Forest that's really capitalizing on quarterback and scheme. I just don't see anybody that I really trust to line up and beat them with consistency. So the fact that there's a there's a one loss built into this this, this over-under gives me a lot of confidence that, that they're going to hit
0: the over. Yeah, and as much as their offense struggled at times last year, their defense did not. I mean, they the most points they gave up the entire season was twenty seven points. A, a few times, and two of their losses and then one of their wins. So, uh, their defense I don't I don't think is going to lose you know any you know any significant ground from where they've been. And if their offense can just get you know a little bit better than they were early in the season, particularly. And, and I, and I think they were showing signs of that, you know, later in the year, they were putting up a lot of points in the second half of the season. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for them to really, really dominate the conference again and be right back in the playoffs. So yeah, 11, 11 or more for me.
1: Yeah. And I think that the, the runway that they get with those first four games is going to allow them to figure out who the quarterback is going to be and whoever that is, should be in a pretty good rhythm by the time they get into the meat of the schedule. So yeah, again, I, I'm I'm pretty high on Clemson. I think Clemson's a playoff team, so uh, I'll take the over again.
0: All right, let's move on to everyone's favorite topic, Miami. Uh, Mario Cristobal's first year in Miami, a lot of buzz, a lot of excitement. They've been hitting the recruiting trail uh, really nicely here of late. They're over under for next year, eight point five. Yeah, so there's there's a couple
1: marquee games on the schedule, uh, which I think make the the eight and a half really a perfect line here. So you have at Clemson in late November, which to me is, I'm going to mark that one down as a loss. And you have at A and M in week three, uh, which is going to be a prime time ESPN game that I think is also a loss. So the question is, is is Mario going to be able to turn over what would seem to be a pretty broken culture from a year ago with two new schemes and perform well enough to win some of these to win more of these fifty fifty games than they'll lose? Because to me. Looking at the schedule at Virginia Tech going to Blacksburg is always difficult uh North Carolina at home a team that they've really struggled with lately um, at um at Virginia going to both Virginia schools to me is extremely difficult and then the the rivalry with Florida state is always is always tough so um to me, I think eight is kind of where I see them landing. I could see nine um but if we're playing the odds here i there's no there's no push potential on this line. I'm gonna take the under just because I think that there's five losable games on the schedule outside of the two that I have marked down as a loss. I don't expect them to lose all of them, but I think that they'll lose at least two uh between the two Virginia schools on the road, North Carolina at home, Pitt, and Florida State at home um i think again, I think that this is a sneaky plucky conference this year. Maybe not for a school like Clemson, who has a fully built out and developed roster, but for a school like Miami who still has some holes and took some some transfers that I doubt Mario would be will be looking at in year two or year three um I think they're still vulnerable,
0: yeah, once again, we're gonna agree on this one. I have them as eight as eight and four as well, um you know losing the same two you think uh and then you know kind of looking at you know a combination of Pitt, North Carolina. Virginia Tech, Virginia, you know, the same four games you're looking at. Like I, I could see them, you know, splitting those and, and ending up eight and four. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked if the, if they went nine and three. I just, it feels like that's much less likely to me than eight and four.
1: Yeah. I mean, just looking at them, like the way that that roster is composed, like I have a lot of faith in Tyler Van Dyke, the quarterback played really well last year. Um, I, I trust that Miami has some talent left over on defense but the offensive line is far from a dominant group. In fact, I think it's a group that um, is going to be something that they see a lot of improvement in over the next two years through both recruiting and development under Coach Mirabal. Uh, I, I just – I don't have a lot of – this This team doesn't strike me with the way that the, the fronts are built on both sides of the ball like a team that's built to grind out close games the way that Mario likes to. Uh, and I think that that's going to add some vulnerability um and It's going to be a real test to see. I think that Mario is going to be put in a position where he needs to be more aggressive in the way that the game is played philosophically to capitalize on the strengths of this team. Because if he tries to play Gorilla ball, Oregon 2021, I I think that this team could lose even more than four games.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I think when you play... Close games, you know, uh, this kind of goes without saying. But when you're when you're playing in those close games and you know grinding out one to two possession games, your margin for error goes up, you know, considerably, or your margin for error goes down considerably. I should say. Uh, You want to move on? Yeah,
1: I I do. I think North Carolina at seven and a half is another really intriguing line. Um, for for me, the big question here is Sam Howell departs. It is assumed that Drake May is going to be the starter. I know that the reports coming out of out of UNC is that there's a competition to be the starting quarterback. Drake May is a really talented kid uh, who was on campus a year ago. I think he's probably the the leader in the clubhouse to to win the job. They were a young team with a lot of expectations going into 2021, and they fell supremely short. Um, basically, starting in week one, there was that big week zero matchup that was hyped, and, and and they ended up choking it away and not only losing, but losing pretty embarrassingly. I, I think this is a UNC team that's going to start to come of age. Uh, so they've stacked a couple really, really nice recruiting classes on top of one another, and a lot of those players, specifically on the front, on both the offensive and defensive line, are now coming into year two and three, and I think that's where we're going to see them kind of start to separate themselves from the rest of the league from a talent standpoint. If If the quarterback play... Can be ninety percent or eighty-five percent of what it was with Sam Howell. To me, North Carolina is a team that that gets to the over pretty easily. Um, I I know that they have the the Notre Dame game um, at Miami's tough, but they they don't have Clemson on the schedule. And to me, with the with the FAMU App State um, and the other FCS game as, as kind of the runway to the early season. If they can be four and two coming out of out of the first six games, I feel really really good about their chances of of winning winning five hundred on the on the last three or in the last half of the season.
0: Yeah, I think this one is a pretty easy over for me as well. I kind of look through the schedule and I see one game that's like okay, that's probably a loss, Notre Dame, and then I see six games that I could say okay, they could win or lose this one, and then I have five that I think they should be a pretty you know, decent favorite in those five. So let's say you go four and one out of those five and you split split the other six. Well, you know, you're at eight you're at you're at eight right there. So I feel I feel pretty good about it. I I, I kind of think eight I wouldn't be shocked if they won nine. Yeah, I
1: mean the the thing with this team is I think that I think that the odds makers are down on them after the performance a year ago with the high expectations, especially when you're replacing quarterback. I, I guess maybe it was just a personal bias. I was never as high on Sam Howell as as many in the media were. I also don't really buy into the Wake Forest sustainability. Like I think that what they did last year was unique. I think Sam Hartman's a good player, but is Sam Hartman really the type of player that's gonna be able to carry Wake Forest to another nine or ten win season again? I I just don't I don't think so. So I I favor UNC from a talent perspective over everybody on this schedule except for Notre Dame, possibly Miami, and then NC State. Um, in that rivalry game at the end of the year, is, is the is the last one I have I have circled. And even if they lost all three of those games, that's still a nine and three season, and I'm covering by a game and a half. So, yeah, I, I feel pretty comfortable getting to eight here.
0: Let's look at. NC State this is an interesting one they've got an 8.5 um, over under I know they're getting a lot of buzz you know in this off season around what what the Wolfpack could be looking like for this year and, and could be a real uh, you know kind of sleeper team kind of coming out like Wake or Pitt last year and really kind of breaking onto the scene so what do you think about eight and a half
1: well I just think that this is a super quality team from top to bottom I think Devin Leary their quarterback is nationally incredibly underrated in fact i if you were asking me to build a team, I'd rather build around Devin Leary than Sam Hartman. So, um, I'm I'm just I just think that this is a team that is built for sustained success, um, at least at least this season, as opposed to a team like Wake Forest, where I think that they're just so dependent on having to win in shootouts that it's going to be tougher for them to be consistent on a week to week basis. Um, where whereas I think that NC State, because of the way that they played on the defensive side of the ball. I don't favor them to win at Clemson, especially after they get the way they won last year at home. But I, I see them as the team that probably gives Clemson the most competitive matchup um, in the conference. So, looking at this schedule, I, I think that this is a team that hits the over. There's no Miami. Um, again, the Clemson game, the non-conference is full of cupcakes. Texas Tech will be a plucky team and an interesting, an interesting game to watch. But I just think that NC State's really, really quality. Like I, I don't. I look at this team in the same way that I look at some of those Cal teams from like the mid, mid to late two thousands, where they've got some really really solid players ar- across the board, um, and they've got really good quarterback play. I-, I don't know that they have like a Deshaun Watson or a Marshawn Lynch, but I know I trust the skill players they have, and I really like the way that they look on the front in the front seven.
0: Well, I keep waiting for us to disagree on one of these, and I haven't found it yet because I also have them on the over line here. Um, I look at this, I see one loss, obviously, with at the at Clemson game. I see six or seven games that I think they should win. So then, you know, that leaves the rest in the toss up category, and I I just I feel like they get two or three of those to get to nine wins. So uh, it's an over for me. And now we move on to Pitt. So this is kind of the elephant in the room. Eight and a half
1: game over under. Eight and five. Losing a ton from a year ago. Um, Kenny Pickett, at quarterback, and drafted the first round by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Jordan Addison, the Bolitnikoff winner, heading off to uh, Los Angeles to, to team up with Caleb Williams and USC. Also losing Mark Whipple, offensive coordinator, um, and Brendan Marion, the wide receiver coach. I don't trust Pitt offensively with Keaton Slovis, new coordinator. Pat Narduzzi's offenses have been really, really hard to watch historically outside of last year with Mark Whipple and Kenny Pickett. I don't trust this offense despite the fact that they have likely the best returning offensive line in the ACC, a really good and staunch uh, defensive front. But with the way that the schedule sets up, I just don't I don't trust this team at all. I mean, you have a game against Tennessee, which will be a revenge game this year after Tennessee um, lost at home to Pitt. That, to me, is a game that I see Tennessee probably running away with with how explosive they're expected to be on offense. Virginia Tech at Louisville, at UNC, at Virginia, at Miami – I think that you—it's pretty easy to find four losses on this schedule. So I'm going to take—I'm going to take the under again. Keaton Slovis just doesn't have the, the talent, in my opinion, to carry this team, um, especially with what I am assuming is going to be a philosophical regression offensively.
0: Yeah, I would probably take the under if it was seven and a half. So I'm definitely taking the under on eight and a half. I do think Pitt falls back to earth a little bit with all of the changes you outlined already and and I see you know five to six to even seven that's probably a stretch losable games on the schedule so I think they're six and six seven and five range they're a bowl team but they're not they're not a nine win team no and and again it wouldn't surprise me if they've if they clawed their way to eight
1: Pat Narduzzi is a good coach his teams play hard defensively they do return quite a bit of talent again their offensive line is very good I think that they'll be able to kind of bully ball their way to some wins but I again in in a game in a league with as much quality quarterback play as this league is going to have next year, I don't trust Keaton Slovis in a shootout against any of the other quarterbacks in this league. Whether it's Tyler Van Dyke, whoever's starting at Clemson, uh, Drake May, whether it's Devin Leary, whether it's Sam Hartman, like to me this is just this is just a losing battle for Pitt in in situations where you need to score late. So yeah, I'm going to take the under on Pitt. Last team we have for the ACC here is Wake Forest with an over/under of eight and a half. Uh,
0: what what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a tough one for me. I've got them with I, I'd say kind of two two games I'm chalking up as a loss for sure, um, and I got seven. You know, they have a pretty soft schedule overall. I mean, VMI, Vanderbilt, Liberty, and then later in the year they get you know they end the year with Syracuse and Duke, um, Army's in there as well. So that, you know, there's a lot of kind of games you should expect to win pretty handily in, in their schedule. So that gets them to six pretty quickly. Uh then it's just a matter of do you find three more, right? Um and and I think it's tough. I think it's you know, you got Louisville at Louisville, at NC State, North Carolina at home. Those are all games that could go either way. Uh obviously I'm chalking up Clemson as a loss. At Florida State could be a tricky game, you know, early October. Um so I'm gonna go under but i'm not putting money on this one yeah i'm gonna take the under as well to me
1: this is a team again that i think they won a lot of close shootouts a year ago there's zero reason for me to believe that they're going to be better defensively uh losing some big playmakers on the outside at wide receiver i i think sam hartman is a totally fine player but i just don't trust him in a league that I think is going to be overall more competitive and better from top to bottom. I, I just see other teams on this list improving more, um, and I, I, th- I don't think that the results last year were sustainable to begin with uh, for Wake Forest. I, I, I think Clawson has done a great job at Wake. I think uh, Ruggiero, their offensive coordinator, um, has done a really good job of, of finding ways to to creatively – create additional separation in the passing game, um, and, and using that long mesh, give eye candy to the second level of the defense. But I, I just, I don't know. I, I didn't really buy into it last year. I, I can't change that now. I, I, I'm taking the under.
0: Shall we move on to the SEC? Yeah, let's, let's talk some real ball here. Yeah, and we got nine teams to talk about in the SEC
1: excellent. Let's, let's start off with Alabama. So 11 win over under, uh, must be nice. I think this is like the sixth or seventh year in a row where they're either at 11 or an eleven and a half. I'm taking the over. Uh, they don't play Georgia in a crossover and I think they're better than everybody else on their schedule. So, uh, give, give me the over. I'm taking an
0: undefeated Alabama. Yeah, the, this one, if it was eleven and a half, I'd probably take the under just to figure there's I mean there's the at Texas game at Arkansas is a little tricky one in there they go to Tennessee who might be plucky at Old Miss who has given them some trouble you know a time or two in the past beat didn't they beat them last year or was that A&M that was A&M so I'd probably take the under if it was 11 and a half but at 11 with the push potential there I'm with you I'll take the over I do think they're the best team in the country this year um I think they're going to roll right into the playoffs, and, and my money would be on them to win it all. So, uh, yeah, 12-0. Let's go. Yeah, I, I think this is the best Alabama team.
1: If the offensive line can live up to expectations, I think this is probably Saban's best team at Alabama. I think this team is absolutely disgusting. Will Anderson um, and Dallas Turner off the edge is probably the best combination of edge players I've seen since I've watched college football. Um, just stacked with elite talent in the secondary. Uh, they don't. While they don't have the Jonathan Allen or the Jaron Reed, um, and on the defensive front and on the interior, I think that players like Byron Young and DJ Dale are unbelievably like consistent and dependable players. Um, offensively, I think Bryce Young is probably the best quarterback that Saban's had, and. They did a really good job of addressing the skill positions in the transfer portal, bringing in Jameer Gibbs, possibly the best back in the country from Georgia Tech, Um, bringing in Jermaine Burton from Georgia, which is hilarious to me that Saban is going into the portal and stealing the best receiver from the team that just beat him in a national title game. Um, Also adding Tyler Harrell, uh, the speedster from Louisville. To me, this is just an absolute juggernaut of a team. I would take them to go over at 11.5, uh, I I don't I don't see a loss on this schedule. The teams that tr- traditionally I would take as a, a a quality opponent or a team that could beat them would be at LSU, but it's year one of Brian Kelly, and I have serious questions about their quarterback position. Um, Auburn, but it's they have a sitting duck head coach and no quarterback themselves, and and then they they play Texas A&M, but it's at home and it's coming off of a loss in College Station, I'm sure that game is circled and explanation-pointed in in red marker and that Alabama will absolutely be up and ready to go for that game. So I don't see a roster on this schedule that's capable of competing with them, and I think that this team is going to have a major chip on its shoulder after the way that things ended last year.
0: Note on that. Texas A&M game. I know you and I, you know, we're talking about this with some other people a while back and we went through and looked up the scores of The last I don't know 10 years 15 years worth of Texas A&M at Alabama games And I think the average margin of victory is like 25 points or something. So no, it was 39. Was it 39? Okay, yeah Because there's that one game that was like 50 to 59 to nothing or something But yeah,
1: like they've just been absolutely beating the piss out of them whenever they've played in Tuscaloosa um, obviously, at, that average going up <laughs> at Texas Week Two um, is a game that will be intriguing to watch because of all the explosive playmakers at Texas. But I don't see a way that Texas can match up with these guys in the trenches. Like, no. like Will Anderson to me might again. I'm I'm trying not to be hyperbolic, but I think this Alabama team is just incredible. Will Anderson might be the best edge player of my lifetime coming out of college. He, he was playing on one leg last year and had twenty four sacks like this guy is just a
0: freak yeah, that's insane production and and it's just <laughs> insane to think about of all the good teams that Nick has had at Alabama to sit here and say this might be his best one yet like that's that's incredible. <laughs> what a bar yeah yeah that's a
1: that's a tough one to clear and, and when we're talking about defenses I think. I don't think that this group is as good as 2016, but I think it's as close to 2016 as he's had. Uh, And I think the secondary is going to have a ton of guys that get drafted high. He's got two super high first round picks on the edge, Um, and the the only question is is really is who's going to start next to Henry Toto Um, at inside linebacker. And there's just so many quality options on that roster that I just don't see a way that they don't have a good player there. So, yeah, give give me the over on Alabama. This is my preseason favorite to win the national title. I think that this this seems like a team of destiny to me. Moving on to Arkansas, over-under of seven wins, uh, coming off a really strong season in year two under Sam Pittman. Uh, huge transfer portal haul this offseason, just continuing to add quality players from Alabama and Georgia who maybe aren't quite good enough to crack the top-end rotations at those juggernauts, but I mean, if you can fill out your roster with guys who are just not quite there for Alabama and Georgia, you could win a lot of games. So uh, well, what are your thoughts on, on Arkansas coming into the season?
0: So I'll start by saying, if you want to see one of the most bizarre schedules you've ever seen from a college football team, pull up Arkansas's schedule. They start with five straight games at home. Then they go three on the road, then three more at home before finishing at Missouri. It's just, it's an absolutely strange or bizarre schedule. And and if you're doing the math, that means they're playing eight home games and only four road games, which is kind of the SEC special that a lot of the kind of mid to lower tier um, historically teams in that conference like to do. They, they, they take their four and four conference game split and then they, they just load all four other games at home. And I think there's, I think I did, I looked this up a while back and I think there's three or four teams in the SEC that have the eight and four split this year. So,
1: well, I'm um, pretty sure the AM game is a neutral site in Dallas.
0: Okay. Okay. Still. So I, it's, I think it's seven.
1: I think it's, I think okay, it's seven, seven, four five. and one. Yeah. My bad.
0: Yeah. You're right. Thanks for correcting me on that one, but it's interesting. So they've got the, the five, four, the five, three, three, one uh, go around there, but uh, I like the over on this one. I thought Arkansas, um they kind of faded last year but I I really like the way they started the the season. I love the the speed and athleticism I saw from them on both sides of the ball. Um I think that obviously depth is a challenge with them and I think that probably contributed to to some of their kind of late season fade. But I mean I think their schedule sets up really nicely. They 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 open with at home hosting Cincinnati, which obviously Cincinnati coming off the playoff run, that that should be a competitive game. But I know Cincinnati lost a ton too, right? They put a ton of guys in the NFL draft. Uh, they turned over. they got a lot of new roster turnover coming in there. So I think that's a game you, you gotta. If you're Arkansas, you gotta think that's a game we need to win. You got that one circled. And then they get kind of some nice you know filler games in between that and and that Texas Texas A&M game you mentioned. Uh, then of course Alabama at home is tough, and you know I'm not going to predict them to win that one. But then they got a nice little, a little interesting stretch here at Mississippi State, then at BYU, which is an interesting out of conference game at Auburn, and then they then they get Liberty at home before, and then LSU at home, Ole Miss at home, and then at Mizzou. So you know they they don't have a ton of. I think the West is interestingly probably weaker than it maybe has ever been, which is crazy thing to say, but you know, Auburn's down, LSU's been down. Um, and uh, so, so there's, there's some more winnable games in the West, I think, than probably ever before. You know, the Mississippi schools are are good, but not great. Um, and then they don't have any, any serious crossover games from the East. So I like them on the over on this one at, at, um, at 7.0. I, I mean, I, I think that gives you push, you know, push savior as well. So I like them probably winning eight. Um, and if I lose you know, if they, if they drop one more, I'm still pushing at seven. So I'll take the over.
1: Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. So to me, KJ Jefferson, as long as they can keep him healthy and in one piece is going to be the, the player that dictates whether or not this over hits. Um, I think that this is set at seven because they are giving more respect to BYU than BYU deserves. Probably same with Cincinnati. I, While I think Cincinnati is still going to be a very good football team, they're extremely well coached, breaking in a new quarterback, a ton of new players, um, especially across the front seven and a defensive back. I I just think that – I think Arkansas is just going to be able to line up and beat them. Like, I, I think Arkansas is just a better football team than both BYU and Cincinnati, and if you give me both of those wins, I favor them against both Mississippi – excuse me. I favor them against both Mississippi schools – LSU's quarterback situation, to me, is a real problem. And then the crossover games against the East teams South Carolina and Missouri, are both super winnable. So I, I actually think this is probably like a 9-3 and three football team. I think that the loss is likelier to my undefeated Alabama team, possibly, um, possibly a loss to Texas A&M in, in a revenge situation from a year ago. Um, and then one of Ole Miss, LSU, and Mississippi State I would, I would take the over at, at seven and a half, possibly even eight. So, uh, especially with push potential. So yeah, give me the over at seven.
0: Yeah. I'm right there with you. I, I almost said I, I could see nine as well. And I, so I would agree with you on that. I think nine and three is, I would say nine and three is more likely than seven and five. How about that way?
1: Yeah. And, and at seven and five, you're still pushing. So I right. just give, yeah, give me all of that. I might, I'm going to put some real money on that one.
0: It's a good line um moving on to florida also at 7.0 what do you think about the gators so i think your
1: opinion on whether or not they hit the over or the under here is really dependent on how you think they fare against utah in week one i think that's kind of a, a milestone game for them in this schedule uh opening up against utah at home uh then kentucky usf at tennessee uh before they play eastern washington at home um and then they have three home games straight against Missouri, LSU, and Georgia uh, before going on the road to Texas A&M, coming back home to play South Carolina, going to Vandy and to Florida State. So I think this is a tough schedule. I really like Anthony Richardson. I know he's not a super proven player at this point. He was really raw and, and somewhat injury-prone a year ago. I think it's a good a good fit. If you watch any Billy Napier offenses at ULL, I think that the, the talent that this Florida team – that he inherited on this Florida team is actually a really nice fit. Um, Where I have questions is at the linebacker position on defense. Um, This is a team to me that has really good frontline talent, but struggles with death. Uh, Injuries could really send this team off, off the rails, um, which is really weird to say for a school like Florida who can recruit some of the best players in the country locally there. I'm going to take, I'm going to take, the uh the over at seven but i i think that this is very likely to push at seven and five
0: i would agree with both of those things I, I seven and five to me is the the outcome i keep coming up when i look at their schedule i see three three losses six wins and you know three games that could go either way um so yeah very well could come come down to that utah game as you said it, if, if this was seven and a half, I'd be taking the under, but because it's seven, I'll take the over and, and have the push in my pocket.
1: Yeah. I'm not nearly as high on South Carolina as many are. If, if, they can, if they can pull off the win week one against Utah, I think this is a pretty smooth sailing doing over. Yeah. I would agree with that. How
0: about the defending national champs, Georgia Bulldogs Eleven and a half they have a higher over under than Alabama. I think Ohio State maybe also had an 11 and a half when we did them a few weeks back, but eleven and a half for georgia that's uh that's a tough, tough bar to clear.
1: Yeah, well, Ohio State was at 11 point zero as well, so this is the highest spread of, of or the highest over under of any team in college football this season. to me I, I'm taking the over i unless I guess the, the 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 hardest game on this schedule very well might be week one against Oregon. Because after that, their crossover game against Auburn, which has historically been a really tough rivalry game, is kind of a toothless Auburn team right now. Um, and the other, the other crossover is a a Mississippi State team, while I, who all I think is is good, I don't think is equipped to line up and just go toe to toe with with this Georgia team. This is a team that returns its quarterback, returns. Most of the key components off of a really good offensive line returns the best tight end room in college football by a pretty wide margin. Uh, While they lose George Pickens to the draft, they lose a bunch of high picks in the first round on the front seven. They still return Jalen Carter, who will be a first-round pick next April. They they recruit at an absurd level, and I I don't see a Kirby Smart-led team falling off a, off a cliff defensively when they're recruiting top 3 classes every year for the last 6 years. So g- give me the over. I don't think there's anybody in the East that can touch these guys at this point. Um it, and I really think that it's going to be tough to to expect a an Oregon team with brand new schemes on in every phase and a new head coach um to come in and beat it, the the returning national champs. So g- give me give me an undefeated Georgia meeting an undefeated Alabama in the SEC championship game.
0: Sure. The SEC and ESPN would love, would love to see that. Uh, the The thing that struck me when looking at this schedule, I don't know. The first time it was maybe a month ago was, wow, how terrible is the schedule? Like this is a week schedule for, for an SEC schedule, right? You hear all the time, the SEC schedule is so tough, but you look through this and all the things you mentioned, right? Like the East outside of Georgia is really on, is really down right now. I mean, you, you gotta, you gotta like the way Tennessee's building back up, but they're not there yet. Um, they got a lot of work to do still. Uh, Florida has been in a downswing. Maybe they're going to come back. Auburn's in a uh, Auburn's in the West, but they're their permanent rival and they're in a funk right now. And then, you know, Kentucky's kind of Kentucky, but man, it's just bad. And then, and then they're out of conferences, you know, outside of the Oregon game, you know, Sanford, Kent state, and, um, uh, who am I missing? Oh, the Georgia Tech game they play every year, but you know Georgia Tech's not not a real serious threat. So it's a really really manageable schedule, and and I think you're right that Oregon game like it conceivably could be the toughest game on their schedule, which is is kind of crazy to say. Um, yeah. And it's a pseudo home game
1: in Atlanta. To me, I, I think the SEC West or SEC East is is not an easy division, but I think that because of the level that they've recruited at, they have just transcended the east and have elevated to a higher plane where they're just so much better from a talent standpoint than everybody else in the east that they show up and even on a bad day they win against these teams especially with some of the coaching turnover that took place i really like what mark Soups does at kentucky but there's nothing about kentucky that makes me think that they can line up and beat georgia
0: right right and you look at the east you look at those other schools in the east when we go through theirs and you're like okay i see like florida they could they could win or lose like games against half the half the division. Right. But you, when you're looking at Georgia's schedule, you don't see it that way at all. So you're, you're spot on there. However, I'm going to be contrary. And I don't think we've disagreed on one of these yet this episode. So I'm going to say 11, I'm going to say they're going to win 11. I'm going to take the under, I don't know, you know, which game that's going to be, but you know, it's maybe it'll be Oregon, but I'll go, I'll go under. Sounds good. So moving on here to a team that we were just kind of talking about
1: the, uh, Mark Stoops, Kentucky um, led football team is, is coming in at an eight and a half uh win over under. Out of conference games against NIU, Miami of Ohio, Youngstown State. Um and then of course their um Oh, I, I lost it. I don't know where it just went. Where's rather their rather four, where's their fourth? Oh, yeah, there it is. All Blue. Right, well. Yeah, their, their non-conference rivalry oh, game against
0: How do I say that? Louisville? Louisville. 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 <laughs> yeah,
1: there you go. Should I start over? No, no. Go ahead. All right, perfect. And, and then their non-conference rivalry game to end the season uh, against Louisville. I think this is another contract season for our boy Mark Stoops, who gets an extension every time they win eight games. I think that this is a schedule that's pretty manageable. Georgia will beat them, but they miss Alabama from the West. Um, they play both Mississippi schools in their crossover games. If there's a year to catch Ole Miss, it's it's in a quarterback transition. Um, I do think that the, that Mississippi State's a better football team than them, but it is going to be played in Lexington. So uh, this is a Kentucky team that, to me, splits the Florida and Tennessee games. I know that they're both on the road. Uh, I think that they're just clearly a better football team than Missouri and South Carolina. So. Uh, give me, give me the, uh, Kentucky Wildcats to get to nine wins here.
0: I'm going to take the under, I don't see any way they get past eight. Um, I, I could see them. I see several paths to eight. I just, I'm not seeing a path past eight. So I'm going to take the under there. I think, you know, Florida game at Florida, at Ole Miss at 10, like most of their tougher games are on the road uh, You know outside of the Georgia game, obviously. So I think that makes the level of difficulty a little bit harder um so i'm going to i'm going to say 8 and 4 and they're going to go under
1: yeah i mean losing wandil robinson is tough returning will levis a quarterback um projected pretty high pick mostly based on talent at this point um i to me this is just a team that they they play hard they're really fundamentally sound specifically on defense they they've they find ways with less talent to get the job done I don't see three clear losses. I think that they'll go 4-0 in the non-conference. They have three patsies. Um, And a Louisville team that, while I think is improving under Scott Satterfield, is just not quite there yet from a talent standpoint to compete with Kentucky, especially at home. If they can split Tennessee and Florida, lose to Georgia, they still have one more loss left on the schedule as long as they can split the the, the Mississippi schools. I, I don't see them losing to Vandy, Missouri, or South Carolina. So, I, again, I think that there is a path to nine here. It might be tough to tow, but if they manage to somehow beat both of Florida and Tennessee, who are not juggernauts at this stage in the program development under, under Napier and Hypel, I, I can see a path to nine. So I'm, I'm going to take the, the over. I have a lot of faith. I think Mark Stoops is a very good football coach.
0: Well, that he is. Shall we move on to LSU? This is an interesting one to me. Their over-under is seven this year. Um they went six and six last year. I don't know what their over-under was coming into the season, but I'm I'm guessing they probably didn't hit it. Um I don't think anyone would have them pegged at six and six. Um they you know, they open up against Florida State. They play Southern. They've got New Mexico it's so a couple really really manageable out of conference games they and of course play UAB later in the year out of conference as well so there's um, definitely some some pretty easy pickings on there but you know they also play in uh, you know Alabama at Arkansas at Am to end the season at Florida in a crossover game they go to Auburn uh, Tennessee at home in a crossover game so there's there's some pitfalls as well. what do you think on this one? This one's tough. If I had confidence
1: in their quarterback play, I think this is a super easy over, but I don't. Um, and despite the fact that I think Keyshawn Boutte is one of the better receivers in the country, I think they have a, a really nice stocked receiving core, some good backs. Um, I think that their defensive front features some some future early round picks. I don't trust Jaden Daniels. Like, if it's Jaden Daniels, to me, this is a push at best. I would probably bet the under if it's Jaden Daniels, but if it's Garrett Nussmeyer um, or Walker Howard, the incoming five-star true freshman, I I think that this team is talented enough to win seven games. The only thing that's working against them is they obviously have their Florida uh, permanent cross rival, which is which is a tough one, and then they also get Tennessee this year, so that they're, they're playing probably two of the four best teams from the East on top of their West schedule, and then also a opening weekend game against Florida State. Um, And again, while I think LSU is a better football team from a talent perspective, I I might trust Jordan Travis more than I trust the LSU quarterback room going into week one. So I don't know. I I think I'm going to take the over because of the push at seven. But if it's Jaden Daniels, just throw me on the under train.
0: I think it's a six and six football team. What the hell? I'll take the under in that in that in that in that way. Then um, I, I yeah, this one's so weird to me. I could see a wide range of outcomes with LSU. Like, I mean, they have a ton of talent, right? They should have better coaching with Brian Kelly taking over and the new staff he's bringing in. But I mean, we haven't seen it yet. It's a new staff. And there's a lot of tough games on the schedule. We don't know how they're going to bounce back. I think the quarterback position, as you mentioned, is a huge question mark and wild card. And, you know, they've got some some games that like the Florida State game you mentioned that could be a tricky loss that maybe you're not expecting on paper, you know, out Florida, the Tennessee game at home. So I do think I do think I'm I'm saying six and six again. They're gonna they're gonna double up six and six from last year, and I'll take the under. And I should be taking the under
1: because I absolutely hate their offensive coordinator hire. Like Mike Denbrock to me is there is nothing exciting about that hire. If I'm an LSU fan, I partnering Mike Denbrock with what appears to be an aggressively average quarterback room going into the season, unless somehow Howard or Nussmeyer emerges and is a, and is the guy. I, I just I think they're going to struggle to score points, and so. In a in a league where Will Rogers is returning at Mississippi State, Bryce Bryce Young is returning at Alabama, uh KJ Jefferson is returning at Arkansas. I I don't have a ton of confidence in the ability of the rest of that LSU roster to carry what might be an offense that can, can go on some serious cold streaks. So I again I'm taking the over because of the push, because of the overall talent, specifically in the defensive front. But I am not confident. Like, I, I, I think LSU is a longer-term rebuild. I think that it's going to take a class or two to get this team back to where they should be.
0: Can you tell me what the difference is between an aggressively average quarterback and a passively average quarterback?
1: <sighs> yeah. Um, aggressively average, in, in my opinion, is, like, these kids came in with, like, high touting. Like, Jaden Daniels was, like, a point nine six four star. Garrett Nussmeyer was a borderline five-star Walker. Howard, Walker Howard was a five-star. Like you, you are expecting that somebody in this room should be better. But to me, it's just there's not a lot to give me confidence. Like it's just, I don't know. Like I know you're being facetious, but if if it was passively average, I would just because they were average prospects. I don't. I don't know that these kids were average prospects coming out of high school. I just don't think that they've gotten any better since then.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I had uh, that's to
1: ask. My, that's me. That's me. Somehow trying to explain my
0: way out of that statement. So hopefully, it, hopefully it passes. Well, let's move on to Ole Miss, shall we? Uh, ten and two last year for Lane for the Lane train. Um, obviously, their first ten win season in quite some time um and but they're coming back with a 7.5 over under this year and i'm looking through their schedule and boy talk about the tale of two halves the first half of their schedule compared to the second half of their schedule could not be more night and day uh they open with troy central arkansas georgia tech tulsa kentucky vanderbilt i mean that's about as charm and soft as the schedule gets um and i'm not saying every team in there but as a whole And then your second half of the year, you got Auburn, LSU, A and M, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi State to end it. Like that's quite the uh, quite the difference between the half one and half two. What do you think about the seven and a half here?
1: This goes without saying. If if Ole Miss can get to seven and zero, I'm pretty sure they get the over. But if they're five and two, it's an under. So I I think that this is going to come down to two games relatively early on the schedule um that Kentucky game which is a home game and then the at and then the at LSU game if I don't I can't do it I, I'm taking the under I Ole Miss has been historically extremely average I don't think that I think Jackson Dart got a lot of hype off of some flash plays from a year ago there was nothing about what he was doing at USC that was like consistent sustained like quarterback play like he wasn't driving the offense up and down the field with good decision making and distribute distribution of the ball he was making some wild plays athletically he has good arm talent he was he really struggled in the Ole Miss spring game I understanding it's a spring game it's an inter-squad scrimmage um, and all the things that go with that I don't know that it's clear that he's won the job I think that Luke Altmeyer is going to give him a run for his money this fall. But to me, there was a lot of turnover. And to consistently rely on the transfer portal with the quality of player that Ole Miss is able to get out of the transfer portal, I I think that last year was a really fun story and a really great season, losing D.J. Durkin, a defensive coordinator. um, I I will say bringing in Zachary Evans, the the running back from TCU, the transfer is is a nice pickup. But if if Jackson Dart isn't operating at, at a high level of effectiveness, I don't see how this team can get over that gets eight wins. I really don't like. I, I think they very realistically might end up losing their last five games, and so they're going to have to be flawless through the first the through the beginning of the schedule. And they're even if they start seven and zero, they're going to have to find a win whether it's at LSU, at A and M, at Arkansas. Or at home against Bama, or or a good Mississippi State team. To me, Mississippi State's the best team in Mississippi this year. So for that reason alone, I'm going to take the under on Ole Miss.
0: Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on the under. Um, You know, even if you get to that through that Auburn game at six and one, I mean, you very well could be sitting coming, you know, playing that Mississippi State game to end the year just to get to seven, let alone eight. Um, You know, I look at like LSU, A and M, Alabama, Arkansas, that gauntlet. That's four losses, more likely than not, and then already you got to win the rest of your schedule to hit the over on this one. And I just, I don't see that happening. There's there's another loss or two there somewhere. So I'm with you. I'm going to take the under on this one. And um, I their schedule just sets up so brutally for them, and and uh, I don't think they're going to repeat the magic from last year.
1: In their last eight games, they might have a talent advantage in two of them. I think that, obviously, Vanderbilt's a clear talent advantage, and I, think that, and I think that they're probably a better football team than Auburn. But Kentucky, LSU, A&M, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi State are all like decisively better football teams to me. Crazy. Excellent. So uh, rounding out here, we have Tennessee and, and Texas A&M. Tennessee with a 7.5 win over under. What are you thinking, Doug?
0: Yeah, this is another one where you know they open up with Ball State, and they go to Pitt in a in an out of conference game that that could be a little tricky. I know we didn't love Pitt earlier when we were talking about the ACC, but it's still it's still a quality football team, and and it's not like Tennessee is a, an up and running rolling juggernaut juggernaut right now. They're they're on the way back up, but they got a long way to go. Uh, then Akron, Florida, LSU, Alabama, UT Martin, uh, Kentucky, Georgia, Missouri, South Carolina, and Vanderbilt. Um, I kinda like the over on this one, but it's close. I, I see I see losses to you know, I think that Florida game could go either way. I obviously I, I see a loss at Georgia, but I don't think there's another obvious loss on the schedule. I mean you got Kentucky on there is a tough game, with a pit game we mentioned before. You know, at South Carolina maybe's a little tricky one, but I, I see a pretty clear path to eight and, and I don't know, nine might be Might be a good nine. Might be more likely than seven. I guess I'd say so. I'm going to go over. Yeah, I think this is
1: this is one of those ones where it's like Alabama and Georgia are clearly the two losses. If they can if they can somehow only lose one uh, or 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 win one of Florida, LSU, and Kentucky, then they're at eight and four. Like I don't think that there's anybody in this non conference that scares me. I mean the fact that they get to they have Vandy South Carolina and Missouri built into the schedule Hendon Hooker returning a quarterback Josh Heupel's offense I I think this team is capable of getting to to eight just on the offense if the defense can continue to improve I think this is a a, a team that could start to threaten in the east as soon as 23 probably more likely 24
0: yeah, I think that makes sense. I think twenty four is probably the more likely time window as well. But but even then, what does that mean? Like Georgia is a pretty stinking juggernaut right now. Like, what is contending contending for second place or contending with Georgia? Because that's a different hill to climb altogether.
1: Yeah, well, Tennessee until the until the conference realignment actually takes place in the SEC has the the misfortune of playing Alabama and Georgia every single year. Yeah, so they're always going to have two losses. Like, I'm not. I don't think that we're talking about Tennessee as a potential East winner. But if they can, I think they're starting to put themselves in a position on the recruiting trail. Um, adding Nico, they're bringing in two top 50 edge players in, in this class already. I think that they're going to put themselves in a position to be like a clear number two. Um, Florida, we'll see what Florida under Billy Napier can do. Kentucky is one of those, like, Kentucky reminds me of Oregon State under Mike Riley. Like, they're always going to be consistently, like, hard to beat, but they're never going to really finish... Above maybe three or four in the division, um, and I just think that South Carolina and Vanderbilt are have a long ways to go still before they're before they're really that competitive. So I, I don't know. I I just I see eight and four this year, but I, I think that Tennessee Tennessee's goal, and at least until the 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 schedule gets switched up, should be to claw their way. To nine wins as as quickly as possible because if they if they can go nine and three with losses to two of the three best programs in the country, then that's a completely respectable like yearly output.
0: Yeah, and i I think nine and three is, is doable as early as this year. Maybe it's another year away, but I, it's it's I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility. Looking at their schedule, they, it's a favorable one to get to that number if they if they hit on everywhere they need to hit.
1: Yeah, again, I think if you're Tennessee, if you're a Tennessee fan, it's just like make sure you beat the teams you should beat. Give Florida a run for their money. Um and and just be okay with losing to Alabama and Georgia cuz you're just not
0: there. Like you just don't have the, you don't have the Jimmies and the Joes. All right. One more to go. Texas A&M. Uh, 8 and 4 last year, which is <laughs> kind of par for their course since they, you know, they'll, I think they've been 8 and 4 like five out of the last seven years or something like that. So uh, losses to both Mississippi schools as well as LSU and Arkansas last year. And they're, they're over under this year is 8.5. Thoughts on Texas A&M?
1: Well, they're starting the year 0-1 because they're not beating Alabama under any circumstances. So now it's the question of can they get to nine wins in the, la- in the other 11 games? And I actually think they can. I think that they have developed the roster to a place where if Max Johnson can just be LSU Max Johnson and be a consistent ball distributor, I think they're a good enough football team to just line up and beat most teams on this schedule on a pretty consistent basis. So, um, giving them the, the two-game margin for error outside of Alabama, I, don't think if, I think that there's a pretty good chance they start 4-0, um beating Sam Houston State, App State, Miami and then that big game against Arkansas. If AM beats Arkansas, I think it's a pretty clear clear route to nine wins. Um I don't see this as a 10-win team though. I think that between uh LSU, Florida, um and the Mississippi schools, they're they're going to find a way to lose two more games outside of Alabama.
0: Yeah, I have them pegged at 9 is 3. 9 and 3 as well. So I'll take the over, but I I do think it's it's either eight and four again or nine and three are the two by far most likely outcomes. They're not gonna lose less than eight. Um, I think getting to ten it is possible, but I, I think it's gonna be a stretch. Like you said, they've got one loss chalked up. It is the only the only game I, on their schedule that I think is an automatic loss. You look at the rest, and there's not there's not anything where you'd even say they're a, you know, seventy thirty underdog, right? It they're 60 sixty forty games, fifty fifty games, forty sixty games, whatever. Um So I think there's a pretty good path for them to get hit the over here and get to nine wins. Um, You know they do have three straight road games at Mississippi State, at Alabama, out at South Carolina. So you could see a scenario where maybe they trip up on that South Carolina game on the third leg of a back to back a week after Alabama. Um, You know, so something crazy like that could maybe drop them down to eight and four again, or just be one of their three losses. So I like the over, um, but. I, I don't necessarily love the over because I think eight and four is, is also a possibility. Eight and four is more likely than 10 and two. How about that?
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that this is either an eight or a nine win team. I just, I have confidence that they'll get to nine just based on the way that the roster has been built. Now I know um, you're not really expecting to collect on the fruits of that, that number one class ever assembled from a year ago in year one, but there's going to be some players off of that class that make some early impacts. I think that, a&M quietly as one of the better secondaries returning in college football. The key metric for me um, is going to be, can they improve their pace of play? Like, they've been consistently one of the slowest teams in college football over the last, I mean, ever since Jimbo Fisher got there. Adding explosive plays into the passing game, um, getting some receivers back healthy, I think will help with that. But also, just not being content to to box yourself into close games against tough SEC opponents Um, being willing to push the tempo a little bit as the more talented team. I think Jimbo needs to lean into that and and play, play as many snaps as possible to let his talent advantage express itself on the field. So uh, give me, give me, uh, give me a, and M to hit the over. Um, If Jimbo Fisher lets me down, I'll never trust
0: him again. Problem is not going to be their defense. Their defense is, is really strong Uh, Was strong all last year. Their challenge is offensive. (laughs) Their challenge is offensive offense. So, if they could get that a little bit on track this year, I, I, think, I think it's a team that could hit the over and could, could even bust into the 10 win territory because their defense is just that good.
1: I think this is a team that's a quarterback away from being a legitimate challenger for the SEC West. Like to be able to actually compete with Bama on a consistent basis. But they got to find that guy. Like I, Max Johnson is not the guy when, when Bama's rolling with, with Bryce Young. Um, and maybe it's Connor Wigman, the five-star that they brought in from the, the class of 2022, but I don't think he's going to be the guy this year. So I think that we're going to be kind of in Christian Ponder, like old Florida State Jimbo Fisher um, game manager mode for for this season. And to me, that just creates a, a situation where it's going to be tough for, for A&M to consistently win because – they're gonna they're gonna find themselves in some hairy late situations against like an LSU or a Mississippi State, um, which are teams that they should be better that like decisively better than this year. So um, hopefully hopefully Jimbo can prove me wrong um, and, and and prove me right at the same
0: time by taking this over. All right, I'm gonna call an audible on you, Notre Dame. We need to add Notre Dame into the uh, over under mix here to to put a bow on on the rest of them. Their over under this year is nine point five. While you're frantically pulling up their schedule, um, they start with at Ohio State, uh, Marshall, Cal at home, at North Carolina, BYU, Stanford, UNLV at home, at Syracuse, home against Clemson, home against Navy, home against Boston College, and then they go to SC to, to finish the year off.
1: Yeah, so I, uh, what's the over-under? Nine and a half. Yeah, give, give me the under. I think they're a nine-win football team. I think that they have two clear losses. Uh, I think Ohio State's going to run him out of the stadium in Columbus to open the season. Um, and I think that Clemson is a team that they're going to struggle to beat. I, I don't have a lot of faith in the quarterback situation at Notre Dame. Um, Tyler Buckner, to me, is a, is a better athlete than quarterback coming out of high school. Uh, maybe he's improved over the last year. But between UNC and USC, um I think a plucky BYU team, I think that there's a third loss on the schedule somewhere.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think nine and three is most likely. This is a tough schedule, you know, all things considered. I mean, you play at Ohio State, you play Clemson, you play at USC, you play at North Carolina. I mean, that's three out of your four toughest games are on the road. Um, and then, you know, obviously you've got, you've got that uh, BYU game you mentioned as well. So I like them at nine and three as well. So we'll take the under. And I will chart all of these up that we've done for all five Power 5 leagues as well as Notre Dame and put them in a chart. And then come December, we'll find out which one of us is buying beer for the other one. Sounds like a plan. So I think now is a great
1: time to transition into our mailbag questions. I know we had a a very large uh, response to the the call for questions this week, which is awesome. I wanted to thank everybody, um, including... Uh, friend of the program, Belize. Uh, her daughter Hadley, apparently 11 years old, is a big Oregon football fan and actually enjoys listening to us idiots talk about talk about this stuff. So, um, thanks for listening, Hadley. Uh, thank you, Belize, for being awesome and everything that you do. Um, but we just wanted to give them a quick shout out here uh, as we transition into our mailbag.
0: So we're dominating the 11 year old uh, demo. Great. Yeah, I think I think
1: we might be the only college football podcast in America with an 11-year-old female listener. We'll take it. Yeah. All right. Let's, number let's, one in uh, something,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we were number two in the Dominican Republic a, a week or so ago when I looked. So we, we just one spot out. We got to get there.
1: So that means that you and I both need to hop on Rosetta Stone because th- this needs to get translated to Spanish
0: as soon as possible. There we go. There we go. We'll get on that. Um, all right. We yeah. We do have a lot of questions. I have categorized them, and I'll just fire them off, and maybe we'll just take. I'll fire a question off. You can answer. I'll answer, and then the next question we'll trade. We'll trade the order around. Works for me. Let's do it. All right. We'll we'll start with recruiting. Um, so obviously not an area of expertise for myself. Um, we scoopduck.com. Justin Hopkins. Definitely where you'd point you to for all of the insider recruiter info and and recommend subbing there. They, they do a great job over there. But I'll start with uh, Webfoot asks, what's going on with tight end recruiting? We didn't get any prep or transfer guys last year, and it looks to me that we got put all of our eggs in the Riley-Williams basket. Unfortunately, Ball stepped on that basket. Who are we going after now?
1: Yeah, so I think Cooper Flanagan seems to be the clear number one at this point. Um, Committed to committed to Notre Dame, which makes it difficult, obviously, with their history of tight end play. Also, the fact that he goes to a Jesuit school in, in De La Salle in Northern California, which has typically been a really good school to Oregon over the years, given the relationship between Nick Gagliotti, um and his brother, who used to be the principal. I'm not sure if he still is. But um, now we have Tosh Lapoy, who has been kind of like King De La Salle now for about 20 years. I I think that's a recruitment that Oregon can get in. I'm not sure if flipping him is a real realistic expectation. I think that the focus for most of this cycle to this point has been to get two tight ends, Williams plus one. Well, now with Williams out of the picture, I think that you kind of narrow your focus and try to just get one quality guy, fully understanding that both Ferguson and Matavayo, neither one of those guys are are draft eligible. Um, Webb um and Herbert are both capable of coming back as well. You can definitely survive only taking one tight end in this class and taking two and really feeling the pressure to get two quality guys next year. Um but I, I don't know that it's panic time yet. I think we should give the give the staff some time um to, to see what they can what they can carve up on the recruiting trail from the tight end perspective. But uh, if you can if you can flip a Cooper Flanagan or if you can uh find a quality quality player Without compromising your your profile, I think I think you're just fine taking one in this class.
0: Yeah, I, w- I would totally agree with that. And I guess the fallback is if you don't flip a, a Flanagan or somebody else or find another diamond in the rough that you like from a measurables and athletic um, profile standpoint, then you know maybe you play the portal. Uh, You know, come off season time if, you know, after the season's over, if you need to get just somebody that's going to help you get through another year and then really have to focus on this position for the 24 class. And really, you're going to want two preps in that class. I can't, I would imagine.
1: And it's a good thing because in the 24 class, you have two four-star tight ends in state. So hopefully we learn from the sins of the Riley Williams recruitment and uh, we can close on Pugliano and uh, the kid
0: from Lake Ridge. Agreed. Let's move on to the next question. Thug Life Tosh asks, "What are you and what are you QB and Doug's confidence levels in landing Richard Young?" So, of course, talking about five-star running back Richard Young. What do you think, QB? Oh, I guess I'm supposed to answer first. Um, I mean, obviously, I you know it's, I'd just be pulling straws, you know, reading the same insider information that everybody else has, or the Twitter information and tea leaves and whatnot. Uh, You got to like your chances. I mean, I think Alabama is obviously the elephant in the room, uh, pun intended, in that recruitment. Um, But he's been out here, I think, twice now. Seems to have really developed quite a bond with uh, Dante Moore, quarterback recruit for Oregon now, or quarterback commit for Oregon now. Um, So that's got to help. He seems to really, uh, you know, be posting a lot on social media. He's got some some duck wristbands in a recent post he's had, you know, he's, he's liked the, the Dante commitment several times. He's commented on some of those posts. So you're definitely in the game. You're in the top two in top three, uh, you know, whether we land him or not in the end, I guess, as anybody's guess, if, if ask him, my confidence level, I'd say, you know, on a scale of one to 10, I'd say, I don't know, six, six out of 10 confident.
1: Yeah. I think the sooner he makes a decision, the better the odds are for Oregon. Um, just kind of riding the momentum of the more commitment but i think that the staff did a great job of of, of leveraging the relationship between more and young and now that you have more in the boat um also just like the the camaraderie that was built on that 24th official visit between him and Dante Dowdo, I think um in a lot of cases with with different kids with different personality types bringing in two your two backs that you're recruiting in the same weekend might be a problem but i think that they really leaned into the fact that they're they're two different players with different skill sets, and, and in a way, they can be extremely complementary to one another. I, I don't know. I, I'm kind of with you. I think it's about a 50-50. I think that had we not got Dante Moore, there wouldn't even be a question he's going to Alabama. But now that Moore's in the fold for Oregon, I think it really gives us a puncher's chance at, at, at the best running back in the class.
0: All right, one more recruiting-related question. What are the three most critical positions we still need to recruit for this class, the 23 class? Why don't you go with one, and then I'll go one, and we'll bounce it back and forth like that. Well, uh, we got our quarterback, and so for me, now I want
1: to go get their quarterback. So I think I think Edge at this point, uh, we need to take three. I'm not sure if uh, um, Tatum Tuioti is being recruited as, a, as an Edge player or an inside linebacker. To me, based on his frame, I think he might project inside a little better. Um, but with players like Colton Vasick, uh, Blake Purchase, Neo Avery, all at large, but uh, you I, I think that edge is a massive priority moving forward. Um, what do you got, Doug?
0: No, I agree with edge. I think that's a position where we need to increase the talent level on the roster, uh, and that's a, a really important one. But I'll add offensive tackle, uh, I mean, offensive line as a whole, but specifically the tackles. I think that's a position where. I'd like to add, I'd like to see us add two and probably even three tackles in this. I guess we got Connerly, so maybe we can settle for two in this class, but I think it's an important position. I feel like there's four, I'd say, high end tackles that we're, we're in that top group for, and you'd like to see us come home with two of those four. So to me, that's a position of we really need to stock the cupboard at tackle. It's a really important position, and we haven't had a ton of luck, um, you know, with guys panning out or staying in in the, on the roster at that position. So this is a year where we really need to hit. Yeah,
1: I think getting Josh Connerly at the end of last cycle gave you a little bit of wiggle room. But in the same way, I think um, that teams build through the draft at the NFL level, like you get your quarterback and then you protect him and you get guys to go get their quarterback. I agree. I think tackle is very clearly a spot where if you can add a couple quality guys, you're setting yourself up to have an absolute death star of an offense here in a couple of years. Um, having Josh Connerly getting Dante Moore, the the pass catchers that you've assembled the corners, and then the defensive backs that you have in this class already, like you are, you're ready to rock and roll if you can just fill out the trenches. And so for me, I think the third spot is, is the interior defensive line. Just, just let's finish off this class in the trenches.
0: No, I think that's a good one. I mean, obviously we've, we've uh, you know, we've filled out the defensive backfield. We mentioned edge and tackle. Um, you know, you, We've done well at receivers. We talked about tight end, uh, running back. We've got lockdown. So the only other ones I could see talking about would be like interior offensive line. I think that's not quite as big of a need. I mean, obviously we need to land guys every year, but. But we've stocked that position, you know, fairly well over the last few classes. So it's not quite as dire as the offensive tackle need. But maybe linebacker would be another position where I think again, we have some good depth now. We got two guys last year that I think are good for the scheme too. But you know, you still need to be still to be landing guys there every year. We don't have a commit yet at linebacker, so it'd be another position just as a bonus fourth one.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think proactively preparing for the inevitable um with with both uh, Noah Sewell and Justin Flo is important. Uh, but I think that the nice thing is is that just even going into the season, you have Bass and LeDuc sitting there as, as the twos at inside linebacker who are super quality starters. So, like, if, if if both Sewell and Flo have fantastic seasons and go pro, I think you're in a position to, I mean, obviously take a step back from a talent standpoint, but still, be really good and not relying on incoming freshmen to to replace those reps. So, um, but uh, again, being proactive about the fact that you're you're likely going to lose at least one, and if things go really well, possibly two linebackers early to the draft this year. Um, getting restocking that linebacker
0: room proactively is important. Let's move on to another category of questions. So we had uh, quite a number of questions just around like the team philosophy, scheme, players. Uh, so I think these are really fun ones to get into. And I'll just dive right in. They're, I'll, I'll kind of lump these first two together. So Lukey Ridd asks, besides reading defense, what is holding back Ty from being QB1? And then Fitfo asked, what effect does Moore's decision have on Ty Thompson?
1: Um, I, th- I think those two things go together. I think um, Ty, to me, is it's... I think you kind of answered your own question. I think it's a matter of growing into the ability to play the game mentally at the at this level. I mean, it's a lot more complex than playing low level Arizona high school football. I mean, you got to remember Ty played at a really small school down in Chandler, um, and there's a it's a much larger learning curve coming to college. And um, I, I think a lot of fans have been almost unfair to Ty in the expectation that. 12 months into his college career, he would have it all down and be ready to rock and roll. Um, and so I, I don't think that it's fair to write off Ty. I don't think that Dante Moore really impacts Ty until they compete and battle it out on the field. Um, but I think it'll make them both better having such elite physical talent, um, to compete against one another with. So, um, I, I think, I think you answered your own question in regards to Ty, though. He just, he just needs to, um, continue to 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 mature and improve on his processing and decision decision making um and that's what's going to dictate his ability to beat dante and if he if he can't do those things and dante beats him out then i think that you probably find yourself in a situation where um one of he he's he's on his way out the door so what are your thoughts doug yeah
0: i think i think you you said it with i think fans kind of Unrealistic expectations sometimes these days with quarterbacks and you know coming in as as freshmen and even as a redshirt freshman expecting things you know maybe that aren't realistic. I think he's got a really great opportunity this year, right? It's a good situation for him to like okay, new system, new coach, um, you know to sit behind a veteran, learn the system, learn maybe how to play the quarterback position a little bit better at this level and observe right maybe get some backup time in games hopefully when and the ducks are like distancing themselves from some of the the easier competition on the schedule and he can get actual game reps to to pair with uh you know the knowledge that he's learning you know in practice and in film study and in in the the team room and everything else so and then you know as he rolls into spring ball next year you know next january He's got that whole year that he's, this whole year that he spent, not to mention whatever he got from last year, right? That he can sit there and walk into that room with and be totally prepared to, to compete for that job. And so it's just all a matter of how he looks at this opportunity, which I'm not, I have no reason to believe he's not looking at it, you know, as, as just that. Um, but if he, if he looks at this opportunity, maximizes it, he's putting himself in an incredible position to really take a step forward and compete for the job next year.
1: Yeah, all indications are is that Ty's a really hard-working and smart kid. I, I, Again, I I, I think that this year of growth and development would be really important, and there's nothing to say that he can't roll into fall camp this year and really have the light bulb come on and take that next step. Because from a physical talent standpoint, I mean, he has immense ability. Um, and if, if he can start to put it together, and uh, like you said, if he can capitalize on some quality game reps this year, He's gonna have a pretty big leg up running into the spring next year, uh, when 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 Dante shows up in January. Um, uh, but I think that some of the things that Ty has needed to learn at the college level, Dante, because of how advanced uh he is from a psychological and an emotional standpoint, is gonna be a little bit more ready to step in and compete. So it's gonna be a it's gonna be a blast to watch those two battle it out next spring and fall. Um, and then also like not not leaving out Jay Butterfield, who has a lot of physical talent in his own right. So um, I, I, just, I think the future of the Oregon quarterback position is bright regardless of who wins the job, just based on how talented those players are.
0: Yeah, and this question I think you've kind of answered, but I, I want to ask it just for Brett Glover's sake. But can you compare and contrast Ty Thompson and Dante Moore? Who's more likely to succeed and why? Anything you want to add? on that
1: topic yeah i just i i think that dante is coming in a lot more advanced than ty did Uh, ty was coming in with a ton of physical tools whereas i think ty is more of a complete player and not that ty or not that dante doesn't have a long ways to go still and doesn't have a lot to learn and and a lot of room for improvement i just think that dante is extraordinarily advanced and i think that again his psychological toolkit is every bit as impressive as his physical toolkit at his, at his young age and is what really separates him, I think, from some of these other prospects. Um, and so I, I think that Ty is a bigger, more physically imposing and probably a better athlete, better runner. Um, but there's a lot of things that Dante has going for him from a psychological and mental standpoint that are, are tough to quantify. So I it's going to be a really, really good competition. Um, I think that they both have tremendous arm talent think that they both are have really good football character from a, from a work ethic and, and a buy-in standpoint. And so, I, I mean, I'm as excited as everybody else to see these guys get on the field and compete.
0: All right. Well said um, this next set of questions, there's four more questions in this category and I really like all of these. So, you know, great job listeners. I'm going to start with, um, with this one with scheme changes. This is from Tyler, Wright With schemes, Changes on offense and defense. Who are the biggest beneficiaries on each side of the ball? Similarly, which players may see a reduced role in the new systems? Great question. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's a f- phenomenal question. Um,
1: the The guys that seem to stand the most to gain to me are are linebackers. I, I think that this scheme is going to really capitalize on the on the talent of our li- the depth of our linebacker room. Um, and it, it's going to highlight them and put them in, in advantageous matchups, isolating them on backs and getting them free runs at the quarterbacks. Uh, so I, I think that linebacker is pretty obviously the the main beneficiary on on defense. But I would also say a player like Jamal Hill as as a safety, uh, playing that star role up near the line of scrimmage, I think he's going to be incorporated a lot into what's happening in the front as well. Um, and then offensively. To me, it's the receivers. I, I just think that an inherent philosophical change to want to throw the ball, push the ball downfield and be more aggressive vertically is going to really highlight the talents of the receivers that, that we've managed to recruit over the last couple cycles. So um, I think that guys like Dante Thornton and Troy Franklin and Seven McGee are going to really benefit from the philosophical change offensively and, and the willingness to push the ball and be a little bit more aggressive vertically.
0: Yeah, I, I mean the 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 receivers was the obvious one. I'll add to that though. I think tight ends too. I think tight ends been a little bit underutilized, um, you know, in the pass catching role for Oregon, you know, under Mario. And I could see, you know, especially with the guys we have, you know, that they're, you know, kind of uh, some opportunities for them in the passing game as well. So I think that's one that could benefit um, on the side of you know reduced role, uh, <laughs> kind of a silly one, but you know. Let's say offensive line. It doesn't sound like Clem wants to do a rotation of six or seven guys this year. So that's that's one or two less guys that are going to at least be in the regular rotation. So there's a, there's a reduced opportunity um, right out of the gate. Um, I think maybe there's there's certain players that with the scheme change are are maybe a little bit tweeners position wise um, to the new schemes compared to the old schemes, and particularly on defenses. You know, probably where where this is lining up. I'm, and I don't know that I want to call anybody out by name specifically, but and I could see there being a number of guys along the front seven, particularly who, who might, be, might fall into that trap.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree that there might be one or two guys still left, but I think the super obvious one that jumped out right away when Landing was hired was Christian Williams. And I think that it makes a lot of sense that he transferred back closer to home and went to Missouri where they run a, four, a base four-man front. Because he doesn't have the requisite length to play on the play a four I or a five technique, and he he's not heavy enough to play the zero. And so, to me, he was a guy who had played a lot of quality snaps and given us good reps over the years, who just didn't have a home in the new scheme. And so, um, him him moving on made all the sense in the world, and kind of was something that I saw happening almost immediately when Landing was hired. Because it just didn't seem to be a good blend, and uh, yeah, so I'm glad that he went and found an opportunity where his skill set can be
0: better utilized. Yeah, totally agree with that one. Um, these next two questions are really ones I'm not equipped to answer, so I'll just throw them at you and, and hear what I think I know what you're going to say on this first one already, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Quack fanatic wants to know what scheme coverage would you use to maximize our personnel strengths on defense.
1: <laughs> um, I don't believe in the idea that there is one scheme or coverage that's one size fits all that can work against everybody. Um, I I just I think you have to be multiple, and I think that's what is really going to be the strength of of this defensive staff and this defensive scheme is the ability to to mix and match coverages and different and and give a lot of different looks in the front and um and, and to simulate pressure and to bring pressure and. I I think that just the the sheer volume of of looks that this defense can produce is its greatest strength, and so picking one doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Although I, I really I really do believe that um, our our ability to play man coverage on the outside with with uh, with Christian Gonzalez and and Dante Manning is going to be extremely important, and so. Um, if those guys come into camp and are ready to go and can prove to be good players, which Gonzalez has already done, but if Manning can can climb and, and rise to, to the occasion to be the to the to be the Batman or to the Robin to, to Gonzalez's Batman, I think that it puts you in a position to be able to be really aggressive
0: and play a lot of man coverage, which would be good. All right. Next question. Lukey Ridd. Do Dilly and Clem prefer a man or zone scheme for OL blocking? How will it differ from what Mario and Mirabelle did?
1: Um, again, I think it's a mixture. I, I think it'll be predominantly more zone schemes than gap schemes, um, but they'll, they'll mix and match. Like if you watched Memphis or if you watched um, Auburn under Gus Malzahn when when Dilly was there, they like I think specifically Auburn does a lot of really cool stuff with their gap schemes. But I think zone is going to be the, the our, our zone schemes are going to be our base bread and butter. It has been for years under Mario and and Alex Miraball. It was under Steve Greatwood. Um, there's different ways to coach it. There's different paths that you can take. Um, but I, I think that it will continue to be our, our bread and butter under under Clem and and, uh, and Dillingham.
0: All right, great. Um, this is another good question. Mark asks, you guys have done roster breakdowns on both offense and defense, but if there's one player on each side of the ball poised to break out on a national level, who is it and why? I'm going to go first this time. Yeah. 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 Go <laughs> I'll ahead. go with, I'll start on offense and then I'll let you, you take the second whack. Um, I think Dante Thornton Jr. Is the guy I think on offense and it could be, it could be him. It could be Troy Franklin. It could be seven McGee. It could be a combination of all of them. But I think, Dante's is the guy I'm going with. I, I don't know. There's something, some feeling I have about him where I think he's going to have a breakout year at the outside receiver position and really, I mean national level. I mean, what does that mean to be at national level? Do you got to be like you know in a, on a, a watch list for the Blitnikoff or on an All American team? That might be a stretch, but but let's say at least from a you know from a conference level and you know making some highlight shows and stuff. I think Dante Thornton Jr. is the guy I'd, I'd say on offense.
1: Yeah, well, you stole my first answer, so I'm going to go with Byron Cardwell. Um I think that Cardwell is I don't think that national or even regional pundits realize how much ability Cardwell had and the jump that he's going to be able to make from year 1 to year 2. And and to me, I think I think he's a better runner than either Verdell or Die. I thought he was last year, I thought there was certainly room for improvement and he could become more decisive, but all indications I've heard is that he has just been an absolute workhorse this off season and has really stepped up and it is pushing. And I, I think, I think he could be a really special back. So I'm going to, I'm going to go with Byron Cardwell. I think he's going to get, um, he's going to get some good opportunities, although he's going to have to split the load with guys like Noah Whittington and Bucky Irvin as well. Um, but I just, I think that his talent is going to show through.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's the obvious one, uh, you know, outside of Thornton. But also, I think it's easier for a running back to break out um, potentially because you, get, you know, you get more consistent workload.
1: Okay, um, I call going first on defense, though.
0: Damn it! <laughs> Fine. <laughs> uh, give me Braden
1: Swinson. I think Braden oh. Swinson is going to blow up. I think Braden right. Swinson is going to have a ridiculous season, and I think he would have had a ridiculous season last year had he not torn his meniscus against Ohio State.
0: No, I think I think that's a great pick. I think. Um, we need someone to break out at edge. I think we got a couple of candidates and maybe we handle it by committee, but he's the obvious leader of that room from a, from a talent and uh, a talent standpoint and potential standpoint and what he could, he could do this year. Obviously D. D. Johnson being, being the guy on the other side that that could also make some noise. Um, I'm actually surprised. I I'm going flow. You got to go with Justin flow, right? Yeah, I know. And maybe I'm just stupid,
1: but like I've kind of, I know what he is. He's already I don't, broken out. In I don't, he, yeah, like even though he's been hurt both years he's been here and we have one game of him against Fresno State last year, like a game where he graded out horribly on his assignments but still managed three and a half tackles for loss and 14 solo tackles, like to me, like I already know what I have there. Like Swinson's the one that I think will surprise people. I think everybody knows what Justin Flo brings to the table and is just eagerly anticipating
0: the opportunity to watch him work. I do agree with that, but I also think he's a little bit of the forgotten man because of the two years of injury. Right. And and Noah's getting all the, the publicity on the national level and right, you know, rightfully so and deservedly so. But I do think, I think Justin Flo is going to have an absolute terror of a season and, and and people are going to be talking about Noah and Justin, uh, you know, by midseason and and all throughout the year. So I'll I'll, I'll take him. But no, but let me, let me just him.
1: tell you, like, if the two guys we picked and if DJ Johnson can step up and really make that next step, this is going to be a really really fun defense to watch. Like, this is going to be. There's some serious talent to go around in this front seven.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's that front seven is is far and away, the most talented front seven in this conference. Um, and I, and that's the thing that's surprising me is like how, how little you hear people recognize that around the conference. Yeah. Well, they'll learn just give them a couple of weeks into September. Absolutely. All right, moving on. We've got another set of questions. Um, this one's about, these are about realignment. So I know we covered realignment in depth on our last full episode and, Um, there's also been obviously a lot of, a lot of stuff on social media, a lot of Twitter space talk, a lot of the stuff going on, but you know, kind of the net net is like, it's just a, it's just a hurry up and wait mode right now. Everybody's waiting on Notre Dame. If Notre Dame makes the move to the big 10, then maybe that puts Oregon and some other schools back in play on moving now. But, but that could be this week or it could be next year, or it could be. 10 years from now. So uh, we're just in waiting mode. But in the meantime, th- there was a few questions that came out that I think are, are worth are worth answering and, and we can expand on some realignment thoughts in the meantime. So I'll hit you with the first one. Uh, this is a, another question from Thug Life Josh, though, th- uh, Thug Life Tosh, excuse me. So Tosh, shout out to you for the double question. If Oregon ends up in a different conference than USC, will Oregon be able to continue to compete with USC recruiting wise? some think Oregon would permanently play second fiddle. I guess I would say some think Oregon is already going to play second fiddle even before the move, as soon as uh, Lincoln Riley was hired, which doesn't seem to be the case so far. But QB, what do you think on this one?
1: I I think that not being included in the the future um, power two conferences will pose some problems on the recruiting trail. Um, How big or small those problems are, could be somewhat mitigated through NIL, um, and that will be remain to be seen. Uh, but I, it's really tough to answer that question until we kind of see what the landscape looks like. I think Oregon is already somewhat playing second fiddle um, in in certain areas with certain types of recruits to USC, but we've been utterly dominating them when we've had uh, Target Homin on on the front in the front on defense and the in the front on offense um and we have had no problem going national and cherry picking off players at other positions I, like we w- i made a really strong argument back when Lincoln Riley was hired that this was not the end of Oregon recruiting at an elite level um and i think what it's shown is that outside of a couple of players in the front in which Oregon has won all of those battles to this point they've largely gone after different guys and both and both have managed to secure like really strong commitments at this point in the, in the cycle so um i think that there's more than enough talent on the west coast and nationally for two programs with the national brands that oregon and usc have uh to coexist and to recruit at a high level it might hurt in some head to head battles in the future if if we're in a situation where oregon is heading somewhere not called the big 10 and usc is heading to the big 10 um, how much of that can be mitigated through NIL or other other things, I'm not sure. Um, we'll have to cross that bridge when we get there.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. I think, I, interestingly enough, I heard some, some scuttle um, this week that there's some recruits that have been considering USC that are actually now thinking about looking elsewhere for the opposite reason, is that they're like, well, I don't want to play all my games, you know, over there and you know, I wanted to play on the West coast. And so I, and I'm sure that's not the most recruits or, you know, necessarily, you know, even a a lot of recruits, but it is like, you always think about it in the standpoint of everyone wants to go and play in the big conference, but there are still, there are still kids that, you know, think about the regionality aspect of it. And so that was an interesting um, counterpoint that I, that gave me some, something to think about. I think also like a lot depends on in, not in addition to NIL, but also like what, what does what does Oregon's landing point look like if it's not the Big Ten, right? Is it a beefed-up Pac-12? Is it some sort of alliance? Is it uh, joining a different conference? Is it, you know, uh, something like that? But also, like, what does the next two years look like? Like, what happens with USC and Oregon in, in this coming season and the 23 season before USC leaves? Like, if Oregon dominates the conference and USC, you know, isn't isn't maybe a step or two behind like that could set a tone for a couple more classes at least where and maybe Oregon can put themselves in a position where yeah we're not in the big two but we're we're dominating you know a, a third conference in the way that Clemson did for for their run their their run at the top of the ACC and that's good enough for for a lot of kids where it's maybe not that big of a difference uh, maker to those kids in the long run. So it, it just remains to be seen. I
1: think that one thing that neither of us mentioned that's important to mention too, is I think that playoff format could play into this as well. Yep. Like, e- even if Oregon doesn't end up being in the same conference as SC, if it's a playoff format that is friendly and is producing consistent opportunities for Oregon, then I think that recruiting will, will hold Pat.
0: Yep. Yep. I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a guy or two here or there that maybe you lose out because of that situation, even, even in the best case scenario, but there's also, you know, I, it's not, it's not necessarily the end of the world either.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a situation where Oregon isn't losing recruits to Illinois or Northwestern regardless. So it's, it's, are you how many additional battles to Ohio state or Alabama are you going to lose? Um, and how many of those were you going to lose regardless anyways? So, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how it all works out. It's going to be really interesting, interesting to track over the next few years.
0: Next question from Devin Needling. Nightling, Apologies if I got that wrong. What is the actual likelihood of Oregon getting passed up for the Big Ten? And if they do stay in the pack or go to the Big 12, what are the chances of Oregon being able to compete while making $50 million a year less than the Big Ten and SEC teams in revenue?
1: You want to take this one doug
0: i mean it's certainly something we've talked about for a lot over the last you know 10 to 14 days uh the likelihood of them getting passed up for the big 10 i think that goes back to the question we talked about earlier like what happens with notre dame it seems pretty clear the big 10 is intent to wait on notre dame um, at least for now um, and we and maybe for the medium to long term as well um so you know it, it could be could be this week, could be next year. And then I guess the question is, let's say Notre Dame does jump into the Big Ten. You know, does that bring Oregon along automatically? Well, not necessarily. I mean, does, does the Big Ten want to go to 18 teams? They want to go to 20 teams. Okay, who's that partner? Who are those partners? Is Oregon one of those? You know, I mean, you, you look at the landscape and you think we're on the shortlist at, at a minimum and maybe maybe in the, in the pole position, you know, after Notre Dame. But it's a lot of conjecture. Um, so, likelihood of getting passed up by the big—I think the question just depends on what the timeline is. Is the likelihood is you know in this year? I'd say it's pretty high. If we're talking about over the next three years, I'd say the likelihood of of making to the Big Ten is is much higher over the next three years than it is this this summer, if that makes sense. Um, to the second part of the question, I mean, yeah, a fifty million dollar a year revenue gap is a big deal, um, and you you compound that over ten years. I mean, you're talking about half a billion dollars. Uh, there's no way to like, you know, nickel and dime your way through half a billion dollars. So it will have a significant impact, and where it will have an impact is on retaining coaches. Not just your head coach, your your coordinators, your assistant coaches, right? When you've got teams in other conferences who can throw funny money at them, how are you going to scrape together the 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 money to to retain those guys? and compete with those offers. Um, but also coaching expansion is likely coming. So there, there won't be a limit on how many coaches you can have, or maybe there'll be a much higher limit. So that's, that's going to also feed into that same problem. Um, you know, just all the other things that, you know, facilities, uh, analysts, you know, you know, strength and conditioning staff, all the other, you know, kind of fringe benefit and amenities and services that you offer to your student athletes. That's all going to be a big, big deal when you have that kind of revenue gap. I think there's there's ways to mitigate it to some degree, not fully. And QB, you have any thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, <laughs> but no, I, I agree with everything you said. I it's I I can't handicap it because I don't think that even Rob Mullen knows the answer to that question yet. I, and I think that that's why it's the unfortunate and inconvenient answer, or inconvenient answer, because we all want to know right now what's going to happen, but. We're just going to have to remain patient. I think that the longer that we hear nothing, the better the chances are for Oregon. So.
0: Um, two more questions on this topic. Uh, Richard, Russ, Richard Rush asks, is there a viable path for the PAC to survive? Eight conference games, four conference games, one against each of the other Power Five conferences. Uh, in short,
1: I don't think that there's a, any chance the PAC-12 can survive without some kind of scheduling partnership with the ACC. And even then, I, I I think that the value proposition for Oregon going as a package with the entire remaining Pac-12 is way worse than if they just go with the Bay Area schools.
0: Yeah, I, I do think there's paths where the Pac survives for the next, you know, maybe in perpetuity, but uh, let's say from Oregon's standpoint for the next 10 years. Now, but that's not necessarily the best case scenario for Oregon. Um, it's, it would probably be the best case scenario for, you know, maybe Cal and Oregon State and Washington State. But um, I, so I think there's ways that it can happen. I think if you look at the existing pack um, and the new Big 12, I don't see a a ton of discernible difference between those conferences, you know, from a value standpoint. I think, at least in the short term, over the long term, I think the Big Twelve is is probably going to be better off, um, just because they're in a region of the country where football is much more important to people. Um, where I think out here in the West, the the interest in football continues to, to wane and dwindle, um, and and this could accelerate you know, that as well, so even more. So I do think, I do think it could survive. I don't know that that's the best case scenario for, for certainly not for Oregon.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I just, Oregon needs to do what Oregon can do to maximize Oregon's revenue. Um Whether that ends up being the big 10, whether that's the ACC, whether that's independence or the big 12. I just, I don't think that this, um, this, this concept of saving the Pac-12 is a good idea unless it's the best option for Oregon. And so I'm rooting against the Pac-12 because I'm rooting for Oregon to get the best opportunity.
0: Yeah, well said. Last question on this topic from Matthew. What is the timeline for everything in conference realignment to happen? Or when will Notre Dame make a choice? <laughs> well, if we knew the answer to this question, we would be rich.
1: Yeah, I would sell this to TMZ for sure. Uh, I have no freaking clue. I'm hoping soon. (laughs) Hopeful for soon, but Notre Dame has time. They got two years to figure this out. I mean, they probably less because I'm sure the Big Ten would love to get a TV deal finalized here in the somewhat near future. But I wouldn't be surprised if this drags on until around Christmas. I wouldn't be surprised if Notre Dame were to make a decision before the season starts. It's just... Um, there's so many moving parts. There's so much for Notre Dame and the powers that be in the big 10 and that Fox to go through. Um, I, I just, I'm not sure how Doug or I could possibly have any insight other than a blind guess, which is no better than anybody else's.
0: I'm going to give this one kind of a, uh, two different answers. Cause I think that there's two questions asked here. And I think the answer to each of them is different in my opinion, um, when will notre dame make a choice i think the, the answer will either be this summer or like relatively soon they will decide to join the big 10 is option a or the other alternative is they decide against that and that decision then comes two years from now let's say maybe a year um, so i think there's that timeline i think for Oregon and the rest of the Pac-12, I think obviously if Notre Dame makes a decision to join the Pac- the Big Ten this year, then I think that kicks off future dominoes that also happen right now. But if Notre Dame decides to wait and stick with the status quo for a while, then I think I think what you're going to see happen with the rest of the Pac-12 schools um, is is probably going to take another year to unfold.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've talked myself into every possible outcome over the course of the last three weeks. It's been, a, uh, it's been a psychological battle with myself to decide if I want to be pessimistic or optimistic at this point. I'm completely indifferent. I just want to wait and
0: find out what the real answer is. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've talked this one around and around and around in circles uh, till, the, till the cows come home. Any other thoughts on realignment or you think we've covered it pretty well for now? It feels like we've saturated it.
1: Yeah, I mean I it's it's one of those things where at, at this point I don't really think there's anything to talk about until Notre Dame gives us some kind of answer or um or Pete Dammel or Bruce Feldman or one of the like truly plugged in people give some kind of indication of what the Big Ten's plans are.
0: Yep. I think you said it. We have one final mailbag question before we call it a wrap for this extra long episode. And that comes from AJ pancakes or waffles. This is an easy one, but I'm going to, I'm going to let you go first. So it's just, it's interesting that he didn't mention French toast as a third option because I'm taking French toast over either. Pancakes <laughs> or waffles. Uh, this is why
1: we work. This is why we work because I was literally going to say French toast over both. Now I'm glad we agree on that. He did give us two options, not three. In this world I'm taking waffles all day every day.
0: 100%.
1: Not waffle. even a question. Not only is it super satisfying that you can cut a waffle up into a grid pattern which I know satisfies your OCD, um it does for me as well. It's just like it's just such a superior like
0: yeah. It holds like, syrup better. You the topping options are better um you know the crispiness on the outside like a nice belgian waffle like that's just such a nice compliment to the to the soft inside yeah it's not a question
1: yeah i need to go buy a waffle maker i, I don't have one and oh, this you got to get a good
0: one yeah i got one of those like good metal ones that like you flip you know does the like turnover thing oh yeah you got to get one of those
1: yeah like i don't i don't really need to be eating waffles that often but i want waffles now and like. My, my my mom's specialty is French toast, and so I've always been a French toast kid. Like we never really did pancakes or waffles when I was growing up. Um, but I'll tell you what, like there's been a couple breakfast places that I've had some pretty phenomenal waffles at, and like I just think as a vehicle, to me like waffles are like the Frito scoops of 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 the breakfast. Like yeah, like, like vehicle. Like from a vehicle standpoint, to transfer some good like real maple syrup to your mouth like it's just it's less messy it's more like, like you said the texture with the crisp i man i i can go on and on i love waffles waffles are great
0: yeah no i'm with you I, like pancakes are a very overrated item to me like i i never order pancakes anywhere i never make pancakes anywhere like there's unless you're like making like chocolate chip pancakes with whipped cream or something is more of a dessert kind of thing or maybe you're making a, a crepe, which I guess is kind of an offshoot of a pancake. But eh, pancakes, eh? I'll pass.
1: Yeah, to me, crepes are far superior to, to oh, sand. Yeah, like I just I think that the problem is is that like the bigger the pancake gets, the more bready it gets, and like and like I feel like it saturates, and in, instead of like being a vehicle for the for the syrup, it like soaks it up and becomes soggy. And like for from a texture standpoint, it's a lot less pleasing than like the crunch of a waffle. Um. Yes, I'm gonna ask you a question off the back of this. Okay, what's your
0: what's your favorite like sugary unhealthy cereal? Uh, I haven't eat. I don't eat cereal much these days. But I'm gonna go. There's a lot of good choices, but like mini wheat, frosted mini wheats. I have a lot of like good, you know, good memories eating frosted mini wheats. You know, and then you get that like sugary milk syrupy, you know. Thing you get a drink out of the bowl when the when the mini meats are all gone. Yeah,
1: see, and th- and for that reason and that reason alone, I'm a cinnamon toast crunch guy because like yeah. the milk after a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch is it might even be better than the actual cereal, which is hard to believe. I there's a place down here um, for those who don't know. I live down in the in the Phoenix area in Arizona that does uh, cinnamon toast crunch milkshakes, and they are insane. Like, yeah, how, I don't so know how good. I never thought that Cinnamon Toast Crunch is the perfect milkshake, like, topping, but it's it's perfect. It's, it's like, oh, it's so good.
0: Yeah, Cinnamon Toast. I, I, as a kid, I never ate those that often. Like, I had a rotation of, like, Fruit Loops, Mini Wheats, like, Pops, you know, corn. They called them Corn Pops, and I think they just called them Pops after a while because they realized, you know, there's probably no corn in these things. But, um, so I kind of <laughs> have this... Kind of had this rotation of these like sugary cereals I ate as a kid. And for whatever reason, Cinnamon Toast Crunch wasn't in that rotation, but I kind of came to it later, you know, maybe as a, as a preteen or early teenager or something. And yeah, that that's definitely a top, top three. All right. I'm going to make more work for you right now. I want, we'll put
1: out a tweet on the QB 11 show, Twitter. I want everyone to respond with their top three sugary cereals. And then we're going to, we're going to, I'll even do this. I'll put together a spreadsheet and we will figure out statistically what is superior. Like for me, it's like, it's definitely cinnamon toast, crunch fruity pebbles
0: and frosted flakes. All right. We have our assignment. And with that, I think we have uh, put another episode in the books of the QB 11 show QB. Thanks for joining me. It was great as always. Was that yeah. your Brian Kelly, Louisiana accent? Attempt? <laughs> oh, I had a weird like voice thing. I don't know. Um, <laughs> hey,
1: thanks for joining me. <laughs>
0: it's like <laughs> a weird warbling thing. It's all uh, good.
1: It's late. For those who don't know, we're, we are recording. It is now one seventeen in the morning. On, uh we're not on a weekday. So we're deplorable, but um, I wanted to thank everybody once again for tuning in um, all the five star reviews. Appreciate that uh helps the ch- helps us grow the podcast and um again like all of your all your support and your in your comments have have been super great um so thank you and uh we'll we'll talk to you next week